uh, we're going to be talking about idolatry. Uh, so we're in a relationship series, and I'll talk about how that plays into, about how idolatry plays into relationships in just a little while. Uh, but right now I'm going to read to us from Isaiah chapter 31. You don't have to turn there. Normally we will kind of stick in one passage of scripture, uh, but idolatry is a big subject. And to help us uh, maybe get a, a well-rounded sort of view of what the big idea of idolatry is in the scriptures, we're going to kind of jump around some tonight. So I'm going to uh, help us try to get an idea of what it is from Isaiah chapter 31. Uh, of course, you have probably heard of the Ten Commandments, and they say uh, not to have any idols, right? Generally, what's in view there is kind of this religious idea of having some sort of object you bow down to or a god you pray to or something like that. But let's, let's see here what Isaiah thinks about um, idols. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 31, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read a few verses down. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who has helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Cheery words here from Isaiah. Uh, I hope that's the thing you need to pick you up tonight. Uh, So we're talking about idolatry tonight, uh, and it is, like I said, in the middle of this relationship series. Um, And it may seem like we don't really know what uh, idolatry has to do with relationships. Some of you maybe are thinking you do know exactly what it has to do. Um, Last week, though, I'll I'll catch you up on where we were last week if you weren't here, and then we'll talk about how this ties in. Uh, Last week was largely about how we need relationships and how we're actually designed for relationships and how we should expect to be disappointed by our relationships. And yet, how we can have hope for our relationships, because as one of RUF's mottos goes, God is at work. We know that he is working to heal broken human relationships and broken people in those relationships. Well, tonight we're going to talk more about the disappointment of human relationships, uh, but also we're going to keep talking more about the hope for human relationships. Uh, Except tonight we're going to approach it from a different angle. And that is idolatry, as we've already mentioned. Um, so last summer, uh, we were in a graveyard. My, my wife, Kirsten, and uh, I guess our baby was there with us too, and the two older kids. So we have a six-year-old named Jude and a five-year-old named Audrey and an eight-month-old named Ruby. Uh, Jude and Audrey ran off somewhere in the graveyard. And I think like right in the middle of the graveyard, there's this really big statue. And... I don't, I don't even really know what it's, like, what it's of. I don't, it's some guy, I think. Uh, I've never really gone over to look at it. But Jude and Audrey were playing over there. And I don't know if Audrey was like playing a game by herself or like she dropped something and bent down to pick it up or, or what. Uh, but she came running back to me and Kirsten, my wife, and said, Mom, Dad, I bowed down to a statue, but I didn't mean to. <laughs> she was really concerned 
that she had broken one of the commandments. <laughs> of course, we tried to like comfort her and be like, I, I, don't, I think you're okay. Like, I don't think you were worshiping the statue. You're probably all right, Audrey. Like, it's fine. Uh, if that's our idea of idolatry, uh, that's, that's a little too simple, right? Like, that is one of the ideas of idolatry in the scripture, that uh, not if you, like, drop a quarter and bow down in front of a statue, but, like, actually bowing down to, to worship it. Uh, that's one of the ideas of idolatry in the scriptures. But it's also a bit bigger than that. Um, the Bible's definition of idolatry is, is a lot broader. Uh, so, as, as we know, uh, we can kind of make idols out of anything. And maybe some of you are already thinking that. Like, well, yeah, this makes sense in a relationship series because we make idols of our relationships. But I want to go a little more in depth than that. Uh, that's true. But if we're thinking of worship only as like assigning the highest value to something uh, or, or just kind of worshiping in the, in the sort of like popular sense, right? Like thinking something is, is awesome or, or maybe giving our lives to something. Um, and and that, that ties into this as well. Uh, the, di- the Bible's definition is actually still broader, bigger, and, and deeper, actually. I think Tim Keller sums up uh, the Bible's idea of idolatry when he says that an idol is anything you love, trust, or obey. I personally would add to that maybe even something that you fear. And certainly where love, trust, and obey tie in is probably where you think you'll find satisfaction. In the passage we just read, if, if you're wondering like, where we're we going to get to that and how that makes sense. In the passage we just read, Israel is trusting in Egypt. This, this was like a long time ago. Israel's on the brink of being invaded by the Assyrian Empire. And their plan is not to trust in the Lord and believe the words he's already spoken about this and when he's already prophesied about this. Their brilliant plan is to go down to Egypt Yes, the Egypt that enslaved them and get help from them because they've got a big army. And what is it that God says here? He says, uh, no, (laughs) horses are just flesh and men are just men. They're not God. They can't protect you how you need protection. They can't be what you need. They're going to fall apart. They're going to get killed. They can't do what you need them to do. So the Bible puts the same principle in different ways many times. The Psalms say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And that's where idol worship would have taken place oftentimes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So the psalmist is saying, I look up to the hills, but that's empty. I look to God for salvation. He's he's putting these two things up against each other. So other gods can't help us and strong militaries can't save us. And literal idols cannot help us, right? A few chapters after this in the book of Isaiah, in in chapter 44, uh, Isaiah is speaking of a wooden log, a tree that has recently been cut down. He says, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. Half of it he burns in the fire and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. 
uh, this man has cut down a tree recently, uh, cooked his meal over part of it, and then worshipped it and asked him to save him. Right in all of our idols, we're looking for them to give us something. We love them for a reason. We trust them for something. We obey them because we think they deserve it. We put our hopes in them. We put our hopes in all sorts of things. We want the things we trust in to save us from our troubles and our enemies. But we also want something or someone to give us meaning. Maybe most often we do this with relationships. Grades and jobs and money and accomplishments and fame and all the other sorts of things uh, that we tend to idolize. Sure, we, we, we look for something in those too. But the thing that's most accessible to us, the thing that tends to be most uh, ruined by this and that, and that we are the participants in ruining it's, it's relationships. We hope our next relationship will heal us from the last one. We hope our next relationship will stop our pain. We hope our next relationship will be the silver bullet that finally makes us happy. We want our girlfriend to heal the hurts from our parents, and we want our friends to carry us through life and help us find ourselves again when dating goes wrong or when the bottom falls out. We want a lot from relationships. Okay, maybe you're thinking right now, uh, last week you told us we need relationships to be whole people. <laughs> uh, that's actually still true. Uh, as the scripture we read last week teaches, we're, we're designed for each other. Right? I, I'm not trying to go back on that, but I'm trying to put it in perspective. Here's the thing, though, that even before sin Adam and Eve's relationship worked because it existed within the context of an unbroken communion with God. Ultimately, and that's the key word here, ultimately, they got everything they needed from him. So what they were designed to give each other and get from each other in part, they did give and get from each other in part. But they were not God to each other, and they weren't designed to be God to each other. That's one of the worst ways sin has ruined relationships for us. We often seek in them what we can only find in God. That's idolatry. That's really at the heart of idolatry. Oftentimes we are looking for a legitimate need in the wrong place. We want something to be God to us. And when we think our relationships can be God, when we think that our relationships can give us everything we need or ultimately meet our needs, we will always be disappointed. Uh, Ernst Becker, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner, writer, said, the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize the love partner, that is, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence 
has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give us this. In our human relationships, we need things like consistency and forgiveness and love and respect and care and hugs and affirmation and even sex, as we'll talk about. By the way, our small groups are going to start up after next week, which is when we'll talk about sex. Um, we'll, we'll launch out from large group into small groups. Okay, back to this. Uh, all things that we need, right? Those are all things that we need and are even meant to find in part in God. Uh, sorry, in people. But ultimately, we can only get them in God. Even at their best, even before relationships were ripped out of the sphere of perfect relationship to God, they were only ever meant to give us things in part. And we need those things truly, seriously, desperately in part, but ultimately we need God. Our human relationships cannot give us what we need in full. They weren't designed to give us what we need in full. Only God can do that. Only God can meet our needs absolutely because only God is absolute. Uh, so often our suffering in relationships, the hurt we feel from relationships, whether it's parents or somebody you're dating or friendships or whatever, right? It's, it's true, and I, I hesitate to put it in like a quantitative sort of form, right? Uh, it's, it's really more of a qualitative thing, but so often the hurt and pain we have from our relationships, uh, it would really only be like, you know, this big. If our relationships were good, but not everything to us. But when we go from looking to a person for friendship and love, to then looking to them for meaning. Our relational suffering grows to be like this big and so much bigger. It grows to be the size of our entire lives sometimes because we can't get meaning in other people. We can't get what we ultimately need in God. Um, so Romans 1 actually teaches us how, how unsatisfactory it is to get what we want. Romans 1 is a famous chapter in the Bible for addressing idolatry. And the sad thing about it is that it says when, when people worshipped idols, God actually turned them over to their idol worship. That is to say, they finally got what they wanted, and it was the worst thing they could have ever gotten. They got what they wanted, and because of that, they will never get what they need. Uh, to put it in terms of food, if we're to think about salt, if we made salt our food idol, we would find ourselves pretty hungry. Right? Salt is good in its own right. It should be put on food. It brings the flavor out in food. Uh, you actually need salt in your body. Like, it's good for you. And good salt can give us minerals other than itself, things attached to it. it. It's good for us. But if you began to treat salt as if it were, like, steak and potatoes and vegetables and, and eggs and fruit, and you were just eating salt, uh, you would quickly find yourself in a state of illness. This would be terrible for you. 
it, it might even taste good, right? Like you might even be getting what you want if you liked salt that much. I don't know anybody who likes salt that much. Right, but it's not going to build your muscles. It's not going to fill your stomach. You're going to walk around feeling hungry and nasty and getting sicker by the day because it's not food. In fact, actually, the very things that are good about salt would become the things that were killing you. Uh, Salt can actually help you hydrate. It helps us retain water so that we don't lose it too quickly, right? Like it helps us not just like pass it through our systems and sweat it out really fast. Uh, That's why there's salt in Gatorade. I think there are several types of salt in Gatorade, among other things. Right, it actually helps us hydrate. But of course, you know that too much salt will dehydrate you. If you were to drink salt instead of water, it would have the opposite effect of helping you hydrate. Because it's not water. You need salt, but not in the same way you need water. Right, it's in that same way that only God can ultimately give us what we need. Salt's good. Human relationships are good, but we can't replace one with the other. Only God can satisfy our hunger and fill us with good. Only he can give us living water. Only he can satisfy us. Um, Okay, so I want to keep... We're going to move away from like what idolatry is and and what its effect is a little bit here. And one of the other texts we're going to be in, um, I'm not going to read it, but we're going to kind of address it here and uh, think about it together, is John 4. Uh, we, we have these, like we've said many times, needs, uh, desires, longings that only God can fill, only God can ultimately satisfy. So I want to look here in John 4 at how Jesus addresses our longings uh, and ultimately how this actually brings us out of idolatry. So, um, in John 4, uh, Jesus has this conversation with uh, someone who's often called the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Uh, so, if you know what that means, it's uh, historically a long time ago when Israel was taken out of its land as a people, other peoples were brought into their land. And some people of Israel stayed in the land and then they mixed with other tribes and nations, something they weren't supposed to do in the Old Testament. And eventually there rose up this group of people called the Samaritans who kind of took the religion of Israel and sort of mingled it with some other things and changed some things around. They worshiped in a different place than in Jerusalem. And because of all these different factors, they were despised by Jews. Sometimes Jews wouldn't even walk through their country. They, they disliked them so much. But Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria and Jesus stops for some water while his disciples go into town. He stops at this well and this woman comes out to him in the heat of the day with no other women and he starts talking to her. And this is actually something really unexpected at this time. The woman herself is surprised by Jesus talking to her and so are the disciples. Not only is Jesus talking to a woman, 
which is what surprises the disciples. Uh, he's talking to a Samaritan, which is what surprises the woman. Right? So, like we said, there's bad blood between these two groups. And on top, on top of that, this woman is not like a role model of morality. She's been married five times. And she's now living with a man who she's not married to. And guys, even the way that maybe you would view that in 20, this is the 21st century? This is 21st century. 21st century America at a Christian school um, is probably still a lot more gracious than the way that these people, Samaritans or Jews, would have viewed this. She's an outcast. But Jesus, lowly and kind, he speaks to her. And she kind of tries to keep him at arm's length at first. Um, he's, he's talking to someone who's not really, like, well-respected. I mentioned that she's alone at the well. She's alone at the well, and she's come in the heat of the day, probably because she's been married five times and lived with somebody who's not her husband. Other women don't want to be around her, or she doesn't want to be around them. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's something to that relationally for her. This is something she clearly wants to avoid, is going to the well with other women. So she does it when it's hot and other people are staying at home. And in this society, uh, as we've mentioned, her multiple marriages would have made her an undesirable. She doesn't offer anything to Jesus. She's not like bringing anything to the table. Right? She doesn't have anything to give him. Uh, talking to her doesn't give him some sort of notoriety. She doesn't have gifts for him. And yet, Jesus eventually says to her during this conversation, I can give you living water. And they're sitting at the well. She's come to draw water that she needs physically. And he says, I can give you living water, something to really satisfy you. Something that if you drink, you will never need to drink it again. He says, I can satisfy you. And then he tells her, go get your husband. Now, she hasn't revealed any of this information to him yet. And she's, what she says in response to Jesus is, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. It's an odd conversation in some ways. What John wants us to see in this passage, though, is that Jesus is going right for where this woman hurts. He's going right for her pain, right where she's been disappointed and let down by things she had probably hoped in, in one way or another. Uh, Men have left her, or she has left them in some capacity. And now she lives with someone she's not married to, and she keeps ending up disappointed. And none of the men she's been with can give her what she needs. So that's where Jesus goes. Right to her longings and disappointments. And says, I can satisfy you right here. Right at the place that hurts the most. Jesus doesn't tell her to clean up and get her life right. He doesn't say you'll be satisfied if you follow my 12-step plan. He doesn't tell her he'll satisfy her if she gets better or that she can find a way to happiness. 
He goes right to where she's been let down, right to where she's been her worst, and probably right to where she's been treated the worst. And he says, I can give you what they failed to give you. I can give you the love you wanted and needed from those relationships. In fact, only I can give it to you. Idolatry is when you seek a real need in the wrong place. And Jesus, he says to you, like he said to the Samaritan woman so long ago, I can give you what you really need. This is really different from all of our other relationships. All the relationships that we think can satisfy us ultimately, they come at a really high cost to us, to you. This is so different with Jesus here because this satisfaction, this living water that he's offering to this woman at the well, it comes at a high cost to him. But like we said, Jesus doesn't give us a a 12-step plan to happiness. He doesn't sell us anything. He doesn't send us on a pilgrimage. He brings us back into right relationship with God. To satisfy this woman, to give her living water, he went to the cross. He went to the cross to be everything we need. He went to the cross to give us someone to trust in who would not fail us, who would never let us down. Who would give us what we ultimately need. He justified us before God so that we would have a relationship with him that cannot be taken away. A relationship that's free from fear and manipulation and a relationship that actually gives rather than demands. None of our idols can do that, but Jesus can. So how does this change our relationships? I'm going to be brief here. Uh, Well, when you have a relationship like this with the one who can give you living water and satisfy your deepest longings, when you have a relationship like that, all your other relationships get put into perspective. You can take insult and injury and rejection because you have everything you ultimately need in Jesus That doesn't mean those things aren't going to be hard. It doesn't mean you don't still have more tears to cry in your life. But it means you've got something stable. It means you have what you need and you have hope in the future because of him. Your relationship to God has been made right through the work of Christ. What was broken has has been fixed. And when Jesus comes again, Every other relationship will be made right as well. You have an unchanging love from the Father and an unbreakable promise in the future that he has told us he is giving us. Uh, And look at this too. When you have everything you need in Christ, rather than isolating yourself and saying you're dating Jesus or you don't need other people, You can actually risk rejection in relationships because you have the love of Jesus. Your relationships can actually get freed up 
by this. They can actually become what they're supposed to be because of this. You can heal from harmful relationships because you know God gave his son for you. He's already proved that he loved you. You can even stand up for yourself, actually, uh, because you don't have to maintain a relationship at all costs when it doesn't define you or give you hope or take center stage in your life. Uh, When your relationship with a friend or parent or the person you're dating is no longer at the center of who you are, then there is hope for it. Then there's hope for it. When that no longer defines you, when you no longer have to find your meaning in it, when Jesus defines you and gives you hope, think of how much pressure is lifted off all of your other relationships. You don't have to make them work anymore. The burden is not on you and it's not on other people. You don't have to live in fear of your relationships ending. You have something more important and satisfying than those things. You can give others a little bit of room to breathe and find God as their own center. Uh, You also don't have to run from relationships, right? Because now you know that God is at work. His Holy Spirit has been given to his children He's working even now to redeem our broken relationships. We don't have to live in fear of our relationships ending and so be ruled by them. That's that's just as much being ruled by something as loving and trusting and obeying it. Running away from it in fear because if it defines you and you have it, when it breaks, it will crush you. When it's no longer threatening to crush you, you can just have it. It can just be a good thing. Uh, You don't have to hang your meaning on someone who can't support it. That's kind of what this comes down to. That's actually where the gospel has the power to save our relationships, even now in our broken world. A few chapters later, again, in Isaiah, the Lord says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is offering us satisfaction. He's done it at the expense of his own son. And when we hear Jesus saying, come to me, I will satisfy you. Then we can stop being ruined by our relationships. And even by God's grace, stop ruining them. Uh, Let's pray. And then I think we will sing again.